welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcons, I'm from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Good day. And freelance writer and critic for Up Nehru. Good morning, Vietnam. Sorry, Sydney. Hello. And good evening, Sydney, or whenever you're listening, or good evening, world, because we are talking all things Sydney Film Festival. Sydney Film Festival officially wrapped on Sunday. However, a number of films are in cinemas very shortly or right now, and a number of films are on stream. We're looking forward to giving you a wrap of all the best cinema that's come to Australia. Yeah, um, we're going to wrap up mostly the films that we've seen at the festival, but next week we should have a few thoughts on some of the films on demand that we weren't able to catch within the festival. Just a few. We're a little bit Sydney Film Festival out, even though it's hard to be because it's been an exceptional quality program this year, by far the best one I've ever attended. They've had the best films from the past years from around the world. This is the best festival competition I've seen, the strongest. We are going to be talking a bit about festival competition and the win at the start, as well as any number of other films, including The Friends Dispatch, Undine, Titan, Drive My Car, Bad Luck Banging, Parallel Mothers, The Can't Counter Touching Again, Hand of God, and quite a few more. We are interested in covering mainstream cinema. So next week we are covering No Time to Die, and then following that, talking about Last Night in Soho, which we saw the night before last as well as Sola and a few other flicks and going into December and the French Dispatch um, in more detail come release in December. But for the moment, we are talking about the Sydney Film Festival. Before we do that, we want to touch quickly on news of the week. The Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival continues online and our brief section deals just to note we're not covering uh, the Red Notice. We've seen it's a movie on Netflix. We know it's- Let's not even mention it. <laughs> we can cover whatever we want on this show. That's the great thing about 2SER. So uh, whatever. The British Film Festival continues, as does the Italian Film Festival around the country. The Japanese Film Festival is also screening around the country. Um, Some of the films from Sydney Film Festival, um, uh, True Mothers, which I wasn't able to catch, uh, but which I heard good things about, and also Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which me and Virat gave a very strong recommendation to in a previous episode of the show that you can find on the podcast, a screening as part of the Japanese Film Festival, just to note. So my big call would be go to the Japanese Film Festival and see Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. And for the British Film Festival, we have Terence Davies' Benediction, which I call it TIFFs, and it's really good. In addition, the Scandinavian Film Festival starts next week after quite a delay. Some of the films from Sydney will be screening there too. You know, Sydney has a long-awaited short film night return at a new venue in Darlinghurst on Sunday night at five o'clock at the Flying Nun. And for Monique, the Melbourne equivalent, have their screening come next week as well. But for now, we are talking all things Sydney Film Festival. We attended the closing night the other night. The Friends Dispatch was the closing night films. We'll be talking about that. But to note, there was a winner from a strong crop, and that was There Is No Evil from Russellov, Mahan Russellov, and it is a um, another Iranian filmmaker. Yeah, uh, another Iranian filmmaker under house arrest, no less. It sounds like the main reason this won, I, I might be reading too much into the comments, but they said special commendation to, to Limbo, special mention. More on that later, but they said the winner is... There is no evil. And they said a big reason is that we thought it would be cool to give 60,000 Australian dollars to this guy. So it seems like a big motivation of picking this film was because the director's under house arrest. And as Virat said, when we were discussing this afterwards, he could maybe use $60,000 to help pay off his legal fees. He's being politically persecuted because he made a transparently political film. He took the step of filming in Iran and making a film that says the way that the death penalty, well, the death penalty itself is wrong and the way that it's handled in Iran is, is even more wrong. My thoughts on this, uh, it's a good film. 
there were better films in the competition. This is subjective, of course, maybe to some people, this was the best film. So I shouldn't uh, quibble about it too much on that note, but it did annoy me that the two films that they were considering were transparently political, which I think is reflective of the, the trend of arts juries around the world in general, where it's always, we've been given this position of authority, we must therefore make a political statement. I think it's a really reductive vision of what important art means. I'm not upset about There Is No Evil winning, really. It's a good film, nor am I upset about money going to someone who could definitely use it to fight against evil, essentially. But it's so reductive, you know? I think good art is important. I think good art is universal. And there's stories in here that might only be about moving on after the loss of someone you love or the importance of protecting our environment, themes like that. You know, they're only, the environment one is political, but any story that's only personal seems like it's going to be passed over because the juries think it's not about choosing the best film, it's about making a statement. But this kind of personal storytelling speaks to a lot of people and does make a difference in the world. I think look, the, the problem is necessarily about what Jewish think is a political film. I think a lot of the films in the competition were quite political, if not necessarily the political message was not probably the focus of the film. Yeah, I'd like and, to compare Limbo and Flea later on in the talk. In yeah, the yeah, but I, like you said, when you mentioned Flea, I thought Flea was a very political film without it being, the, without the politics of the film being the overarching theme around which the film centered. It was still a personal, a personal narrative. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the problem where they want something that tells world, you this is the message. Juries all over the world are now prioritizing movies that the movies with a message, which is fine, rather than the message being part of the film. I mean, I'd rather that a film is basically firstly doing something interesting in terms of form, which actually seems to be part of the criteria of the Sydney Film Festival prize, that it is pushing the boundaries in terms of form as well. Uh, did, there is no evil to that, to an extent. To an extent. But, but not as much. There were other films who did push the form and boundaries a lot more. Memoria, for example. Drive My Car, for example. Drive My Car. Were a lot well, more inventive. A lot more in inventive in terms of form. And also mm -hmm. a political film. And also Bad Luck Banging, if we're talking about that. It's Extremely political. Extremely political film. I mean, it's, it's, silly. That is... it's just a joke, as the film says, ironically. It's not important with a capital I. Uh, and be important. Yeah. The, the one film that won the Palme d'Or is the, a, a, has a crazy premise, which we're going to talk about later. And it's mm. perfectly overrated, but again, we'll discuss. But I haven't, I haven't seen this film, so I can't comment directly. I'll just make two uh, general observation comments in response to what has been said. There were very experimental films that pushed the form. I think Flea did, for reasons we discussed last week. Petit Maman also, again, pushing what a children's film and what is accessible to adults can be. I think what, in terms of messaging being resonant within films, and I'm, I mean in a literal way and not in a narrative or really more constructive way that people can relate to, I think it's actually a very, very particular issue not just around the world, but in Australia. I'm very supportive of Screen Australia and other like bodies. They do amazing work funding organizations and good films. But in terms of what they approve, it is very strict KPI driven. And therefore often films and filmmakers point overtly to elements that otherwise can be imparted better as we saw by Sleed Shikiyama through Subtlety and Else. And I wonder if that is just a trend that we're accepting and not necessarily should be to the extent we are. And it's a problem that if, if this becomes 
how films can reliably be funded and how films can get reliable funding to tell certain stories because certain film studies, certain amounts to tell certain stories, then that is certainly a problem within the space as it would be comparatively around the world. Finally, just on Rasselov, um, I didn't see the film, but I saw his opening, his closing night address. It was very brief. Usually you'd think, oh, okay, this guy won the Sydney Film Prize, such a brief uh, comment. Maybe you could have said, well, but you know what? It's telling. Um, this guy's under house arrest in Iran. Um, I appreciate that he spoke to us at all, given the nature of the film. And I really hope that in future that he has the uh, ability, using the City Film Prize money, to like any other radio and every other radio and filmmaker and creative, to make more films and use that for the purposes of what he's doing. Because, and I, I mean, I had a moment ago about how we have this issue in Australia with creativity, but is so right. more extreme and so, on so many more levels in a place like Iran, where, um, in spite of that, and thank and there are amazingly talented filmmakers doing some of the best work in the world. Yeah, exactly. The Iranian industry is incredible. And I wonder, honestly, um, what sort of dire straits Russell Luke would be in if uh, Berlin hadn't given him the grand prize for the Berlin Film Festival. I think there's an international campaign to keep giving this guy major attention so that he's only under house arrest. You know, I think he, his punishment would be a lot worse if it didn't look so bad for the Iranian government. So on that level, I understand it. And it's hard to really complain. So that is the closing night winner. Um, to note, also there was a Vaskir Sami retrospective, a number of films, um, the Iranian filmmaker who passed away, it was five years ago now, and um, a number of his films screened throughout the festival. Yeah, um, look, I love Abbas Kiarostami, but I shamefully hadn't seen a few of his major works. I, I'd seen 10 a long time ago, but it was good to revisit it here. Um, it's amazing how much Kiarostami keeps mining from these minimalist concedes. The ones I was able to fit in were 10, Where is the Friend's House, and The Wind Will Carry Us. Um, Where is the Friend's House has such a simple concept. I thought it was an interesting double feature with There is No Evil because it's much smaller scale. It's not about something as huge as the death penalty, but Kiarostami's definitely picked up on the connection between beating your children and creating authoritarianism and conservatism. Yeah. And th this is a basic film saying to be kind to each other. Um, and stand up against unfair rules, divide us as people. The thing is, thinking back to what I was saying before, that is a political message, but it's expressed in a personal way that isn't quote unquote important. So if this film were part of, were a new film, not one from the eighties and part of the official competition, there's no way it would win, even though because it's speaking about something more personal, it might be able to have more of a direct impact on individuals to change the way they exist in the world. Concluding my rant, guys, please broaden your idea of what personal, what political storytelling is. But back to Abbas Kiarostami, deeply moving. How did you find, uh, I, Virat caught The Wind Will Carry Us with me. I hadn't seen it before, but he'd, he'd caught it. Yeah, look, I think uh, one of the other thing we should note is that these are newly restored versions, which Criterion and MK2 have done together. So these are now upscaled to 2K. Look absolutely beautiful. Not that Kiarostami's films didn't look beautiful before, no, but, the but they do look beautiful. even even more pristine and, and, and precise. And the vast landscape, especially in uh, The Wind Will Carry Us, mm. uh, it's such a landscape-driven film where the landscape is contributing to the idea about, you know, you should appreciate the present and yeah. not, not be so caught up in... Uh, you know, we're all going history. to die, so look at what we yeah. have here while we're Pretty here. Much. The main message. Yeah. But the, the beauty the beauty of that film, there is, uh, you know, firstly, it's a you know, filmmaker crew coming up to document something that's happening in this village. We don't quite know what that well, event is. Telecommunications was. crew, right? What's yeah, interesting is the business, the business thing they're doing is held at a remove, and the main character gets caught up in this family thing, which is also held at a remove. Yeah. 
It's really all about the weird little moments along the way. But the beautiful thing about this is, and that there's one repetitive sequence that really sort of moves. Going up there, the, it was becomes going, almost a running joke every time he yeah. gets a phone call. because A literal running joke because he's running up the hill. Yeah. So basically, because he's in an area where there is little to no reception, he has to go to higher ground to receive a phone call. And every time he gets a phone call, he's on the phone, yeah. hey, hold the line, hold the line, while he's <laughs> running, drive the car up to a hill to receive a call, and he has to come back all over again. Yeah. But actually, the beautiful part about, about the film is, in, in this kind of Kirstami way, but appreciating what life is, because technically the film is about nothing, as most Chris Tommy movies are, but it is still about you know everything in general. When I talk about the minimalism, ten is ten single takes with with just fixed digital video cameras inside a taxi as a divorced woman drives a taxi around talking to people in Iran. It speaks volumes as a metaphor, but it's such an incredibly simple concept, and it accumulates weight both as a character study and as social commentary. Uh, basically, Abbas Kiarostami is a god. Go check out his stuff. His work continues to echo throughout world cinema and will for many years to come, I think. You're listening to Film Fight Club on 2SL, Glenn Gavinstein, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. The next film we are talking about is the closing night film, which will be in cinemas come, I think, December 2nd. We'll elaborate, come then, The French Dispatch from Wes Anderson. It is starring everyone. Vanessa Doe, Willem Dafoe, Cher Cher Ronan, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, um, Adrian Brody as but uh, we'll uh, list them all when the movie comes out. Christoph Waltz, <laughs> Jeffrey Wright. It is set at the French Dispatch, a New Yorker stand-in of sorts, um, and it is three anthology stories. I enjoyed all three of them, um, the first and second the most in that order. Um, I loved the Benicio del Toro artist in a prison with Leia Sadu. Um, mm. Timothy Chalamet had the perfect level of self-awareness as a crazy student activist with perfect hair. And I love the use of animation and miniature buildings and the deadpanning, which Bill Murray and many others do on such an excellent level. Um, I had a lot of good time. I think this is a hyper Wes Anderson film. This is a next level compared to what we're traditionally used to. Yes. Uh, Wes Anderson films and also traditional film fans will enjoy this. I don't think he's ever made a bad film. And I think this is honestly one of his, I think, above average for him. Look, uh, Virat said while we were watching this towards the end, this is almost too much Wes Anderson. It is, as you say, a hyper Wes Anderson film. And to use the old cliche, it's kind of like formerly Grand Budapest Hotel on drugs, right? On, on steroids. It's like, it's constantly whirring you through this contraption, both in the structural conceit of the film of three different stories, paying tribute to this editor who's died, and within the stories themselves, where it's like, here's there's animation, um, here there's animated paintings, it's just constantly throwing ideas at you. And it's, the script is extremely wordy. It feels like we're being steered through this labyrinth of all these Wes Anderson type concepts. He's pulling out visual tricks that he hasn't used since, um, in a couple of cases, The Life Aquatic, right? It feels like a summation of all of his themes, yet even more crazy. And it's all expressing a political message I suppose that the world doesn't really make sense anymore. So we need to, maybe an apolitical message, a message of retreating from the world into our artistic obsessions. And I found it quite depressing in terms of what it's actually saying. But of course, being Wes Anderson, it's extremely entertaining to watch. I think, yes, A, it is, it's very much too much Wes Anderson, but I didn't think Wes much Anderson- is never enough. Have, yeah, I didn't think he could go more Wes Anderson-y, but there it is. This is, this is probably the culmination of all his work. In fact, 
if you had to pull out like you know all the tropes of what a Wes Anderson film is going to be like, this is the film you'd reference to, and in that kind of very Brechtian way, it, it, you know, is it basically is the best film or director the most film about that director? I think, I think yeah, it, yeah. it is very much uh, well, that film. Very. Yes, but at the, at the same time, uh, I feel this film is interesting in a way because it's yes about a magazine and, and it's a tribute to writers, but the way the film is actually handled formally it kind of feels like the actual magazine panels are coming to life. So there's an interesting uh, visual storytelling device being used by Anderson where the actual stories from the magazine seem to be coming to life on screen in a real way. And the way a lot of the set pieces are set, you're either tracking the scenes from left to right as you would read a magazine as well. So there's an interesting centerfall style of actually telling the story visually. Visually, this maybe takes your breath away. He's finding new ideas within his ultra-constrained form. He's, he's going further into that and expanding it up. I can't wait to talk about this film more when it comes out, honestly. Right. In response, I do think this is the code of form. I don't think it's too much Wes Anderson. I like the style. I think it works. I think it's not just a culmination, but a refinement of a lot of the excellent stuff he's done, including um, like what it was referenced. And um, most importantly, the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, Jeffrey Wright, I think was the real discovery of this in terms of Anderson's oeuvre. He's perfect for him. Um, he casts actors for voice in an exceptional way. Speaking to the political dimensions of this film, you could see him, and I think a lot of other directors would have made more of a joke out of like the Chalamet character, but he's treating him as tragic rather than a little ridiculous or pathetic. It's a subtlety which I feel Anderson gets across, and therefore I like this film. I don't think this film was cruel or mean to anyone who didn't deserve it. And I think that's a nice thing to see and a mature thing to see in a Hollywood film. It is a Hollywood film. And also Tilda Swinson in a little more removed role, great. Uh, that is The French Dispatch. Uh, could we'll recommend talk about it more. There's so much fun and discovering and just addressing it more come December. The next film we're talking about is Undyne. Yeah, um, it's a Christian Petzold film. It's... Uh, concluding the trilogy with Franz Rogowski after Phoenix in Transit. I've always found Christian Petzold's films to be a, a little bit of an emotional remove, but in the yeah. case of both Phoenix and Transit, the intellectual concepts behind them are so interesting that the emotional starts to be derived from the intellectual. I didn't find that so much to be the case here. This one is a retelling of the, the myth of the Undina. Think the Little Mermaid. Um, it's about a woman who at the beginning of the film is having a breakup. She warns the man that if he leaves her, he'll have to, she'll have to kill him. Um, but she doesn't, she defies the myth and she meets a new man and who is an engineer under the water, a scuba diver doing industrial diving work. And uh, it's a romance. It's a, a story about clingy possessive love, but I personally didn't feel most of the time, the weight of the emotions in this. It's more of a story that I enjoyed at a remove. And there's a political level as there always is in Petzold's work, but the political resonance didn't really, unlike in transit, for example, add weight emotionally to what was going on. Maybe that's because I'm not German. So there isn't such a feeling of complicated nostalgia for the GDR and the days of a divided Berlin, but I could only appreciate that aspect of the film that um, through Undina's role as a, person giving a presentation at city at the city hall showing the model of the old Berlin. He kept trying to draw into the narrative. It overall, there, there's something quite beautiful about the way that this narrative concludes. It's, it's very well plotted out, but I can only say that I liked it as opposed to loving it. Yeah, I mean, uh, out of the three trilogy, if you're looking at that, this is the weakest 
of the three in the trilogy, if you're looking at it that way. Uh, I liked it, uh, given the strength of the films in the festival, I thought this still ranked quite low for me in terms of where it did rank overall. Uh, there's still a beauty about, look, uh, the lead pair, Paul Breer and Rogowski, make Such a fantastic couple on screen. They have amazing chemistry. And the beautiful thing that they do actually is not necessarily in terms of their dialogues. It's in the way they use their unspoken silences to communicate so much more. The ability for them to pull uh, from that and really set up their narrative, uh, their characterization is, is beautiful. I mean, Paula Breer is fantastic once again in this. And if anything else, if she's going to be Petzold's muse for the near time, I think they're going to make a fantastic director-actor combination because she really fits into his world. Mm. Because the problem with Petzold, as you mentioned quite rightly, Chris, is that he's such a cerebral filmmaker. Making emotional stories. Telling emotional stories, but he doesn't quite know how to get emotions across the screen. Paula Breer, on the other hand, is such yeah. a, a powerhouse in terms of communicating emotions uh, where the three people in the backseat and, and she's able to bring that out to the fore quite a lot. So I think mm. it's a beautiful marriage, if we were to say so, of a cerebral filmmaker trying to tell emotional stories, but with an actor who actually gets emotional drama yeah. very well and can actually bring that to the fore. So that is, Undine, it is um, screened as part of the Sydney Film Festival. Might English. get a release. His previous it's ones did. Because I think Phoenix and Transit got a release. Uh, did. release. So did Barbara before them. So Dendi Newtown, keep an eye out sometime next year. Yeah, I was waiting for the cinema release. I really liked Phoenix. I wanted the few didn't like Transit very much. So I'm curious about this one. Next film we're talking about is uh, the much-awaited, much-anticipated Titan, which will get a cinema release. We'll talk um, about it more when at least I get to see it. I'm not sure if he writes in. He's not much for horror. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I was the one who braved this. Uh, like, I'm, I was disappointed, guys. This is a, this is a big movie. Uh, this is from director Julia Ducanau, starring Agatha Russell. It won the Palme d'Or. It is about a woman, Alexia, played by Agatha, who, um, following a car accident as a child, um, has a metal plate installed in her head and who works at car shows and develops a relationship with cars of sorts. It is about um, her experiences and, as discussed widely in the press, there are elements that are considered violent, difficult to watch, um, including a scene that has been much publicized involving sex with a car. As is that an actually kind of, of a, sorry, is that actually kind of a spoiler that they've made part of the promotion? I've been told as much, but you might disagree having seen it. It, 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 it occurs early enough in the film. I think it is indicative of the general material of the film. And I know the film does go into vastly different areas, including a quite distinct storyline, which I'll address in a bit more detail in the second half of the film. First thing has to be noted, um, every year at the City Film Festival, there's a controversy of sorts. This one, there was a report that 16 people uh, fainted and there were a number of walkouts. I wasn't at the opening night screening. I spoke to other people who were there. There was apparent, there was some walkouts, but then no one really saw any fainting. Though this very well could have happened. Um, this I, I spoke to people at the Ritz session. Apparently there been, oh, so fainting wasn't apparent in my session in Newtown. I didn't see any walkouts, didn't see any fainting. This is a different crowd. Yes. Uh, so I wonder to what extent that is, has not been the case. In terms of how difficult this film was to watch, it's pretty standard Sydney underground film fare. This should have screened there. I say that as marked as to genre as opposed to not, and there's not a comment on quality. As to quality, I thought this was a good film. It's not palmed all in a quality. I think it's very overrated um, in terms of length. 
but I thoroughly enjoyed that they had a, she had a creative way to tell the story about this individual. I think it falls into the pitfalls that a lot of films do where the secondary character and the secondary storyline, which come up later in the film, are just that much more interesting. And there's a disconnect between that and the gimmick of the film. So while I enjoyed a creative way the story was told, I found that the just more simply human narrative that occurred later was much more interesting and engaging. Um, I was able to, someone who watches, it has difficulty some watching some of the more extreme stuff and stuff. I didn't have difficulty watching this. There were two scenes I wasn't able to watch, not including the aforementioned scene. I think it's important about this film. It's actually very funny. I was appreciative. There was someone sitting next to me who was laughing at all the same moments. Uh, Dendy Newtown was absolutely the right crowd. Really, though, it is this in the Underground Film Festival crowd. Um, I think the use of visual effects and practical effects were really good. I thought the main actress was very good. I think the best foreign show was actually Vincent London playing a character, Vincent, who appears later in the film, but I don't want to discuss their role. Finally, the film is fundamentally about an extremely powerful and resonant idea that everyone needs someone who needs them and that we're better people once we have that. However, this does come up, and I don't say come up in the literal sense. I mean, it's only really explored thematically at a much later stage, there's a lot of great setup for it, but I, it's such an amazing idea that anchors this film, and I wish it had been a little more unresplendent throughout, though I appreciate that's not the particular form of this narrative, and I think the element of the gimmick which has seen this film, but so much publicity around the world, just isn't as interesting as the more fundamental, again, human narrative that we see emerge later on. That is the ton. Discussing it with you. I look forward to addressing it in more detail. It is, look, it's a good film. I just don't think it is Palm Dorwin a good. The next film we're talking about is as part of the official competition, Drive My Car. Man, what a film. Yeah, it's, that's a film. It's a movie. Yeah. Uh, Drive My Car for me was by, like, I wouldn't say by far because there were some great ones. But for me, this is the film of the festival and the film of the year. This is Ryusuke Hamaguchi's second film of the year. Um, and after winning a, a Best Director Prize at the Berlin Film Festival for Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, he won the Best Screenplay at Cannes for this film. This film is adapted from a Haruki Murakami short story, but it's been turned into a three-hour film. And Hamaguchi has expressed his clear love for the theater, merging this story of what was about an actor in the short story and turning him into a director so that this is merged with the narrative of staging a new production of uh, Uncle Vanya at a Hiroshima Arts Festival, during the course of which he comes to terms with the loss of his wife and meets a young woman also experiencing loss. It's such yeah. an incredible film. It's an interesting film. There's something interesting that happens formally about repetitive long takes where two people are within a car, literally driving, listening to tapes of Uncle Vanya which is recited hypnotic. by recited by the the former wife of our main character, so it carries huge emotional significance to him. And you know, it's I mean, it's a it's a, met a metaphor that speaks volumes without having to be completely unsubtly presented as here's the metaphor, here's the meaning. Yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful film which uh, deserves more discussion, which we will delve more into the podcast. Right. So we're going to be discussing Drive My Car and a number of other films, uh, Four Seasons in a Day, Bad Luck Banging, Parallel Mothers, Hero. Um, the dog wouldn't be quiet and more come the podcast. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. Before we continue on our coverage of this in the film festival, just to note a couple of weeks ago, 
we discuss the guilty in the new Jake Gyllenhaal film in that um, I and I believe others praise Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. We want to withdraw those comments because we no longer want to praise Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, we don't like him. He's bad. He's I like him. Glenn, I don't give a shit about his private life. Glenn is a Taylor stan. And so now that she's clapped back, he cannot bring himself to enjoy this man's work. For the record, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is an amazing actor. But, but there is, to, not, not to defend Jake Gyllenhaal, but I have acknowledged that there seems to be a trend in Hollywood, the male actors of basically choosing their girlfriends, which do not go past a certain age. Leonardo DiCaprio also being a serial offender of this. So it seems like at the time when they were dating, the age difference was troubling for me. Look, we can frown at it. Um, no, no, this is me. It's legal. Um, I know, but I don't really want to delve into this territory right now. Yeah. I, 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 sure, there, there can be a power imbalance and that can be skeevy. That is true. Also, okay, like, that, that, that car life, is, you know, that car is passed. Let's drive our cars to our driving. Getaway car was those sales of preference you're looking for. No, I couldn't care a shit about the age difference. Um, it's their, that it's their business, and I honestly don't have. I like the music. I don't really know what happened personally. So I concern, I like the original all too well. Go listen to uh, Taylor, you know, but actually, the original. Before we um, get without, without giving Ron money. One or two sentences. What did you think of Taylor's directorial debut? I haven't watched it. Wow, I'm shocked. I, the, the, the thing is, okay, and in all seriousness, the first five albums are just such masterpieces. I like them as they are. They were over the time. Record. I don't have a great interest in revisiting it like I don't have a great interest in a lot of watching a lot of filmmakers who would look to the latest Star Wars where George Lucas made little edits. I liked it in its original form. It may have been quote unquote imperfect. So I think as again, the original Star Wars, I'm gonna use the all too well analogy. The original song was great and didn't really need updating. Um, it's a strange, it's a strange new world that she's opened up for music, which we've seen in debates play out in terms of filmmaking. But we can discuss those things in another week. Yeah, this week we're jam packed with stuff. And man, we've only just started Though, let's face it, there's no way we're going to really be able to scratch beneath the surface of Drive My Car, which uh, from the sounds of Virat, who uh, description, since he actually read Murakami's short story, that was something that actually did need updating and reinterpreting here. Um, I honestly, without having read the original short story, the decision to merge this with um, the staging of Uncle Vanya strikes me as a huge stroke of genius. The conceit of this director's work within the narrative is that he's doing multilingual plays where characters speak in their native language and there's subtitles in all the languages um, that are spoken in English in order to convey to the audience something that's going on. And the idea both of that and of Uncle Vanya speaking to the emotional struggles that the main character and the young woman who must drive his car, thus the title, being reflected in the, uh, the narrative and the themes of Uncle Vanya, to me shows this idea of how stories unite us. Stories connect us across cultures. A story that, as the main character says of Chekhov, is, is too real and draws real emotions out of you, continues to speak to people across boundaries for hundreds of years. And ultimately, that the film, in addressing the idea of how do we move on from grief, how do we live, how do we find happiness in a world that presents us with so much sadness, ends up being a really deep celebration of what's universally human. It's also an incredibly well-plotted film with some twists and turns in the narrative and interesting dramatic tensions. There's an incredible power play of sorts going on between the main character and the person who he casts as Uncle Vanya, who he has, a, as the press notes say, a complicated history with. Incredibly well put together. And 
honestly, I, w- I could, was the only person I could hear crying at the conclusion of this film in the state theater. I don't understand. To me, this this was so insanely uh, human. I, I think we don't understand Sydney Film Festival audiences because they, they laugh, they, they they laugh at things. They should. They, they laugh at things where you look like, uh, that's a bit They cry weird. when they, they shouldn't. <laughs> they cry when they shouldn't. And then Not they don't they cry should. when they probably should. And they don't anyway. laugh when they should. Yeah. They laugh when they shouldn't at, ho- at things that are horrific to laugh at. I think there, there, there is a beautiful Town. I'll give that audience credit. Again, Denny Newtown, great, great to see cool. you. Cool. Okay, Drive My Car. It's an interesting film in a sense that Murakami has never been able to write good women characters. But Hamaguchi in fact, loves he's women. incredibly terrible at writing female characters. Uh, whereas in this one, uh, the way uh, Hamaguchi is able to uh, subvert that and actually uh, make that the central conceit of the film, the his wife's presence and the character of uh, his wife is actually central to our main character understanding himself and also finding something new to appreciate about the world and her, about other people. Her mysterious unknowability, I could easily see how that would be a, a classic Murakami trope. Exactly. But, but you know, in, in, in Murakami, it becomes a manic pixie dream girl sort of thing. But but in the film, it's, it's, it's a lot more interesting in the way that it is telling more about our main character and protagonist and his relationship with other people than actually about the character themselves. So it's less about the wife and more about him, actually, and, and him coming to terms with himself. And there's a beauty about that and how it actually mirrors uh, the character of uh, who's driving the car and her own terms of grief and her own uh, tragedy as well. It's a film about tragedy. What I did love was it, there's a final sequence, which you will see. It's a beautiful uh, way of expressing the universal monologue in Chekhov. It's mm-hmm. a very interesting way to do a Chekhov monologue as well, which I felt was very interesting as well. It's a good take on Chekhov. Oh. Chekhov is beautiful. All of the it's writing different. conceits of this film 100% pay off in this one moment that creates an image so incredibly simple and powerful that I was... And stunned. I still wish there were no subtitles for that final sequence. But anyway. Yeah, it worked with the subtitles for me. Um, it did, it did. But I, I did wish to take that... Maybe it would have worked further ...if they didn't have subs for it. Yeah. So sure. that's Drive My Car. It, it was one of the best films of the festival, if not the best film of the festival. I hope it gets a release. Um, it's, it's a transcendent film, honestly. Everyone should see it and drive their cars. Yeah, it's three hours long, but to me it's not slow and it's accessible in how direct it is with its characters. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm very keen. I am keen to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not as keen to see is Limbo as part of the official competition. Well, look, before I get into this, I acknowledge that I am completely out of step with most people's opinion here. I, I only spoke to one person after the screening, but they loved it. And uh, on Metacritic, I noticed that there are zero negative reviews and the lowest review was uh, two and a half out of four. I thought this was pretty bad. My response when I started watching it was, hang on, I thought we've already seen the Aki Korosmaki refugee film. That film played at the Sydney Film Festival a few years ago. It was The Other Side of Hope. And this film is biting his style. It's this very arch style with characters arranged around a frame symmetrically, you know, or geometrically staring off into the distance with long silences. It's a film about refugees in Scotland waiting for the letter in limbo, um, explaining whether or not they'll achieve recognition, you know, whether or not um, they've been processed successfully, whether they'll be returned home or they will ultimately uh, be accepted as refugees. The problem for me is not everyone can be Aki Korosmaki. He has such a, a touch, right? And he, despite you knowing what you're getting into when you watch one of his films, 
Like Wes Anderson in The French Dispatch, in his very refined style, he still finds new ways of surprising you. This, to me, firstly, is not funny. There's a really nice warm humor to Korosmaki. Here, the, the comedy struck me as like sub-Jared Hess. This was like the lesser films he made after Napoleon Dynamite. This kind of like, isn't it so wacky? Isn't it so quirky? You know, isn't it funny that the, the little fat man with the mustache does a little, does a weird dance to this 80s music in a wide shot? It's just such low-hanging fruit kind of humor. On top of that, you know, it's stuff like, haha, isn't it funny that a refugee really loves friends and they get into arguments about friends? Isn't it funny to see the sad refugee man wearing a, a fuzzy panda hat? And what I hope what's coming across here is that I found this really condescending. All the problems with this film to me spring forth from the idea of putting a refugee narrative into established indie film templates. And in order to try and make everything so wacky, zany, and quirky, it ends up making the refugees look really dumb. Outside of the main character, they come across looking stupid. Like, I, I get that maybe it's meant to make a point about loneliness and desperation after being held in this limbo for such a long time, but what, this guy really doesn't see that it's wrong to steal a chicken? That's just one example in the plot. They all come across as stupid. They all come across like they're being laughed at by the narrative. And it's so schematic, as I was saying. It's so designed to fit templates that everything that is set up will be paid off. And some would say, yeah, that's good writing. But when it's so predictable, it starts to undermine any of the emotional weight of this and make the characters not feel real. And when it's things like a character appears in one scene that sets something up and then disappears from the narrative until right about the end when there's the payoff scene, it's so utterly predictable. I'm saying this film has no surprises and I will grant that in some of the darker turns, there was a bit of a surprise in there, but then it just goes back to the kind of false uplift of conventional coming of age narratives. And at the end of the day, seeing something as weighty as this, it feels like this is a filmmaker who is leaning on the inbuilt resonance and trauma of this kind of story to elevate a not very original concept. And ultimately, making this kind of film about the refugee experience feels insulting to me. And oh, one last thing, the, the style, like I said, not everyone can be Aki Korosmaki. It gets tiresome fast. Like I said, there's no twists within it. So when I'm constantly watching people just staring into space and long, awkward silences, I've seen that in Wes Anderson ripoffs for the last 15 years. Grow up, do something else. This film is not horrible, but I really didn't like it. And to me, it really speaks something about the values of arts juries and this jury in particular, that of the two refugee narratives in the program, they were looking for um, not to flee, which invites you to empathize by just telling you a personal story, telling you what it's like, allowing you to draw your own conclusions. But Limbo, the one that has, um, first of all, is not told by somebody who's actually had a refugee experience. Um, the one that uses blunt metaphors, which are exceedingly obvious, um, and has through its metaphors and through actual dialogue, the characters speak direct messages telling you how to feel about how bad it is and the ways that we treat refugees. They're not looking for the political narrative of bridging the experience. They're looking for a political statement that tells you what to think. But as we were discussing in the previous episode of the podcast, discussing Sydney Film Festival, if that's your intention when, when going into a film, why make it, you know? Film is about storytelling, film is about dreams, and film is about finding the unpredictable. But here you go, a template screenplay, everybody loves it. That's Limbo. Two things. I don't know if Limbo did something like this, but something that we didn't talk about before that I was really impressed by the extent to which the main figure 
um, who was experienced being an asylum seeker, had just empathy for others. There's a heartbreaking scene where we see, a, yes, in Fleet, yep. where we see a young woman, where he sees a young woman who he knows is being mistreated by the police. And he knows that in these circumstances, in the borough circumstances, there's really nothing he can do to support her, even though he knows what terrible situation is and he has such empathy for her. Um, that's a very powerful idea in and of itself. And mm. I loved the film for that. Uh, and the broad empathy he had for others in, in spite of the fact that everyone is surrounding him should have simply had, had empathy for him. Yeah. Secondly, on this film, um, when you mentioned particularly the Friends reference, it, I don't, it, the, the, the terrible film The Terminal came up from 2004. Also a film that it's so it's well so low hanging fruit experiences. humor. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but this is so low hanging fruit humor. Every time these jokes came up, I thought I've seen all of this before. At least Karismaki came up with some new dumb jokes when he did The Other Side of Hope, like the wasabi thing. Yeah, um, that was a film which handled refugee experiences very valid by making up a fake country and oh. um, just being Hollywood and overt and blunt, and it sounds like this did too. Next one we're talking about is Four Seasons in a Day, a, a, a film from Ireland, uh, which is a co-production with a number of other European Union countries, including Belgium. It is about the Carlingford Lock, the ferry um, that crosses between, and how different people across the ferry every day for work and life. I'm kicking myself for missing this. Can you hear what you have to say? Yeah, it's, it's just a film that 75 minutes got in, told a story and all the time it needed to. And about how individuals who live in the surrounding areas who cross the ferry every day or regularly characterize the current situation in Ireland and in Northern Ireland regarding Brexit and uh, tensions between the UK, UK residents, um, Ireland, Irish residents uh, mem and people of different faith backgrounds, namely Catholics and Protestants. I really like this film. It's an observational film that just shows here individuals going about the day-to-day -day life and running. I was in Ireland when a lot of the Brexit debate was happening and I was in a lot of pubs and people were concerned about things like car insurance and violence, the whole gamut. And this film covers that really well. Uh, my favorite observation was actually from folks who uh, were by steadily a little bit outside of the situation and not really essentially clear on the religious divide or national divide and just coming in and saying, oh, but I'm not really sure what's happening here. This all seems negative to me. And then others, people who they and their families lived through the troubles. Um, the best scenes to me were parents talking about their history and their relationships, they were Protestant with Catholics and vice versa. It captures a great, some great moments with either as with the kids as individuals, the parents talking with the kids about uh, as similar to how the very good first season of Dairy Girls captures, where historically individuals of Protestant or Catholic background wouldn't necessarily interact. But now you just have these kids who are like, I want to play with the kids. Um, do I have Catholic friends? Yeah, I think so. My friend's Catholic. I don't know, whatever. They're who cares? And I really like that. It captures a real intergenerational shift. Um, the Just the plaintive moments of we're concerned what's going to happen. We're not sure how this is going to play out. Um, what's going on in Ireland right now is very much underreported. And this touched on it while being a film that is accessible. Uh, this could have dealt into the history of the troubles or current violence or tensions that are going on, but it does in a way that is accessible to families and that tells the story of families and just people who aren't politicians, people who aren't, who don't have that function, just ordinary day to day uh, are going about their lives and are both hopeful but foreboding. And I think it captures um, that range of experiences. I think this was really good. I think for anyone who's an interest in the region and the current extreme fallout that's happened as a result of Brexit. Um, I think you will find this very interesting and I can recommend it. I had four sets, four scenes in a day.
Sounds great. Yeah, I, I, I really liked it. It was a good session at uh, Palace Chevelle. There was clearly a lot of the, a number of members of the Irish community there, which was nice to see. Uh, this is obviously a extremely sensitive issue, and I'm glad that it's getting uh, some discussion in Australia because we have a very large expatriate Irish community here, and we'll hopefully the foreboding elements won't play out. But I, I feel where, uh, it's interesting, what, as part of the Irish Film Festival, we covered another film, sorry, the name has escaped me, about a family who lived on the border and it was analogous for grief, how there's this invisible border there that isn't really functional, but it's there in the same way that grief plays down your life. And I think we're seeing a few films come out now discussing this issue and this region. Um, this has been a, a byproduct of Brexit. And I look forward to seeing how uh, very talented filmmakers um, explore these issues as they did in Dairy Girls mm. and else. I think we'll be seeing more on this front um, come the Sydney Film Festival, the Irish Film Festival and um, other forums. The next film we're talking about is Bad Luck Bang. Or Looney Porn. And Looney it is. And Porn it is because it opens with a sex tape. Um, full on seems to be unsimulated sex. Uh, and then launches into this, this wacky poker-esque song. Sums up the film. It's in three segments. The first tells us that this tape's been leaked on the internet. Our main character is a teacher and she's going to be meeting with students to discuss it. She then, I guess, goes for a walk around Bucharest. Uh, um, this is a slow cinema segment that reminded me of Memoria, but obviously um, what it's expressing uh, and the style of expression, it's completely different. It's going for comedy here, but um, absurd comedy. The reason it reminded me of Memoria is obviously it's coming at it from a different angle, but it's these slow cinema takes of a woman alone in a city and it's expressing this idea that um, our world doesn't quite make sense. Um, an alienation from the current state of things. And here this is expressed through camera panning over um, people. Okay, notably it's set during COVID. People are angry, people are road raging, um, people are frustrated. And it's showing you Western influences, the avalanche of advertising in the contemporary world all through the camera, just sort of um, moving past this woman going for her walk and settling on the strange things around her. The second segment is a dictionary. It features a number of definitions for phrases and it's after this long, slow opening of the film, this is rapid fire, um, short attention span serving, uh, featuring punchlines, which are all kind of political commentary, talking about the hypocrisies of the society we, uh, that we live in. And the third section is all about exploring those hypocrisies through drama. The main character must defend herself against a meeting of concerned parents who think that she's not cut out to be a teacher anymore because of having this indecent video on the internet, which notably was leaked by IT people. It's not her fault at all, yet she's held accountable. I found this to be really interesting political storytelling. It comments on, like I said before, the, the many hypocrisies of the contemporary world, but also the, um, something that came through to me watching this is how it seems like the arrival of the pandemic onto the madness we're existing in right now has pushed people over the edge further into madness and that they're looking for a scapegoat and not addressing the real issues, but targeting someone who's essentially innocent like this woman. Um, I found this movie also really funny, which uh, subverts a lot of the dryness of what could have been a very, you know, it's a very bleak political film. The dictionary section, I mean, as an isolated shot film, I think anyone, as long as they're ready for some, some, some uh, full frontal nudity, Anyone could enjoy the dictionary section. It's just so witty and funny and, and such a blast. 
for me, the third section was probably the weakest, even though I really enjoyed watching it play out because it's so broad. But, you know, it culminates in a hilarious image. I, I loved the whole film, honestly. It's one of the best of the festival for me. I think, look, if you're talking about uh, pandemic era films and uh, the bunching this in into a COVID film is probably doing it injustice because I feel a lot of films have tried to address COVID uh, by directly talking about it with having masks and everything else. Yes, this film does have that. But what this film does is go one layer below and actually talk about what the pandemic has done to us as people. Yeah. You know, and that's the beautiful thing about the film, where it's actually trying to diagnose what the impact and effect of the pandemic it has had on our psychology and how we treat other people. It's made us more aggressive. It's made us more short-tempered. It has made us, basically, the absurdity of the world is not because the world is more absurd. It's because the pandemic has brought about basically our worst tendencies to the fore and exaggerated them. It hasn't just created problems. It's drawn out the problems that are already there and made already them Already there. And I think that's what this film really does it so well. And I think that fragmented nature of the film, the way it's told, really speaks to that. So structurally also- how well like, it holds together for being three fragments. That's true. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the first, first half of slow segment cinema, even though Chris is our resident slow cinema junkie. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't that much a big fan of it because I felt in the whole narrative of things, I knew it was what it's trying to do. It's probably too long in terms of how to try to accomplish. My favorite section was a dictionary section, which I think is going to alienate a lot of people because some might say this was in its own thing, a 40 minute segment of A to Z. The fact that it holds your attention for the entirety of the dictionary section, even though it's just mm. a running dictionary, is an incredible feat of filmmaking. Yeah. The fact that it never bores, even though it's just definitions coming up on screen, but was interesting to me. It's constantly different interesting images, including some, like I said, extreme nudity uh, examples to shock you out of it. Yeah. And, uh, it's constantly throwing at new concepts. If you like intellectually grappling with the film, how can you be, go wrong with this? Yeah. Just in brief, I really liked the first section, despite it being too long, I guess because it was too long, because for me, the more and more and more and more weird things that happened on her walk it accumulated in intensity until by the end of it, it was like suffocating, like, oh my God, the modern world makes no sense. But the film is about, as it says in the dictionary section, trying to make you look at our world with eyes afresh and notice what's really going on. Also, a lot of the context about Romanian history, which I didn't know about. So I appreciated that and got to know a lot more about Romania. That's it. it educates you. It's, yeah, it it actually, allows you to read the subtext that otherwise only Romanian people would be able to pick up on through the dictionary section. Incredible. It's definitely a film that everyone should see. It's, it's a very interesting film. And the, the third segment is, is almost like Monty Python-esque, right? In the, the absurdity and the, some of these characters in their weird costumes yelling out dumb things over and over again while the character's just trying to get, you know, well, in, in, just in, be reasonable. In the, in the third segment, basically everyone is playing a caricature or like a pantomime version of a stand-in ideology, right? So, uh, and everyone is talking about the moral ethics of whether or not a teacher being involved in a sex tape is the right or wrong thing to do and the impact it would have on the children, the horror, the horror. Oh my God, what will- No one wants to take responsibility for their own. Exactly. Anyway, so it's, it's, it's an interesting film. It is basically in three different parts. All three of them are very different, yeah, but it somehow them. works together as a whole. And you know, it's it's supposedly, it's coming out in cinemas on the 25th, which is crazy to me. I imagine it'll be a tiny it's release. It's a good Boxing Day film. I would totally recommend not, not this over most in the, the world. The 25th of November, a bit okay. over a week away, right? 
incredible to me. This is one of the weirdest movies to get a, uh, or the, the most out there to get a cinema release in a long time. I imagine it's going to be like once a day at 9.30 for the pervert set with a name like Bad Luck Banging or Looney Point. So be a pervert and go check it out. The next film we're talking about is The Swordsman. It was supposed to play as part of the Korean Film Festival. However, I was announced as part of Sydney and subsequently played there. Um, it is starring Joe Taslim, the raid actor, and Jang Hyuk. It's set um, in 1623. It is about uh, following uh, the deposition of a dynasty and fallout over broader uh, political um, implications in, in Korea. There are local leaders who are jockeying power and influence, and it is about um, fallout between these groups. It's an action film predominantly. Uh, it's a strange one where it's, it's you shouldn't, but often in well-funded films, you will see a stark contrast between different elements of the production. The fight, the fighting and the fight choreography here, particularly from uh, the raid actor, is gorgeous. It is so well done. The actors and stunt performers are so well talented. They are matched by the choreography. It is great to see genuinely fantastic fights sequences. The problem is that unlike a film, I'll use the analogy of the raid two more than the raid, even the raid one, um, the direction is simply not to match. The camera, um, often there'll be flashy, quick cinematography or mid shots in a fight scene. There should almost never be mid shots in a well choreographed fight scene with good actors. Um, look, look at the classic Hong Kong cinema, which does it so exceptionally well. The issue is that the I think there's an assumption in this sort of shooting style that the action uh, needs to be supported or the action needs to be supplemented um, and just because it's done traditionally in Hollywood, but here you have access to amazing performers and it's distracting and it takes you away. It means you can't cleanly watch uh, the action sequences that take place, which are the biggest draw of the film. There is a decent story. The other performers are good. Um, the, how it plays out is quite obvious, but uh, you enjoy it for the uh, dynamics between uh, a few key excellent physical performers. Um, I enjoyed it for that uh, when I was able to, I think, properly discern it. There is a the flashy editing style and the flashy direction simply did not work with the style of narrative and style of visual performance they were trying to tell. So it's a sad dissonance there, but I enjoyed um, I, I enjoyed it for the action. I have, it was the only real action film I saw during the festival and it may get a release, I'm not sure, but I would just, it's one of those situations where Unlike Cats is a more extreme situation, but you have to marry the direction with what the story is trying to do and tell and show. And as good as as good as you still could discern, it simply wasn't on. It wasn't the case here, and that is the swordsman played as part of the festival. One of my biggest gripes about contemporary filmmaking and action filmmaking is why the hell have directors lost the ability to stage a scene well? And it sounds really like a shame to see a film with great action performers and great action choreography where the director can't figure out how to make it sing. It should be the easiest thing in the world. Come on, guys. It's, it's, it's not that I think there's a, I think there's an idea with a lot of directors that they need to make it themselves know that they're there. Scorsese is an amazing example where someone who knows when to set the camera back and let a scene play out and someone who otherwise knows when to be casino style in your face, Goodfellas, The Wolf of Wall Street, showing more an active role of the director. You don't have to constantly remind someone that the director's there in order for the director to be effective. Sometimes the opposite, sometimes it's setting yourself back and letting 
other elements drive the story. And sometimes when you do have to compensate, yes, the director should play more of an active role. This was clearly not one of these cases. Well, on the subject of directors who sometimes play a huge active role and announce themselves when they're there and sometimes sit back and let the narrative play out, Pedro Almodovar, his new film, Parallel Mothers, which has been widely uh, received uh, extremely well. Rapturous response, I would say. I've seen I some praise of this no film. No idea why. The best film he's made since All About My Mother in 1999. And I thought before I saw it, wow, must be great. That's a big call after Pain and Glory. Drum roll. What did you think, Bharat? Oh, it was horrible. It was, it was horrible, horrible in the sense, I think it was one of the weakest of the festival. It's still a good film in any other festival, probably. It was a but... mediocre film, I think. Overall, it's, it's, one of, it's, one of his it's one of the weakest. I didn't li I liked it less than Julieta, which says a lot. I liked it less than uh, Broken Embraces. Outside of I'm So Excited, which is a bit of an anomaly in his recent filmography, you have to go back a while to find one that was as weak as this. This was. I mean, but, uh, I'll tell you why. Okay, this film is trying to do a, certain, a lot of things, and it doesn't do any of them well. Firstly, it's trying to basically make a commentary about our history, our shared history. So Penelope Cruz plays a photographer who also wants to uncover certain things about her family and her past. And for that, she needs to excavate certain, uh, you know, past members of her family to find out more about their history. It's supposed to be a poignant comment about how, how our history has shaped the present and will continue to shape the future and how we should basically look towards the past, towards to look towards the future. Uh, it's supposed to be that connective tissue. This doesn't land in the film because apart from being introduced in the first 10 minutes, it doesn't come back until the very end of the film, which is the final act in the final 10 minutes. For the rest of the film, this film is basically a kind of psychological drama uh, between Penelope Cruz and another friend of hers who she meets while they're both in labor and uh, they have a they baby connect and bond. Cut to the chase. This movie sucks. No, look, I, I totally agree. Sorry, I, I, I've got um, I've got edgy energy this morning, and, and Pedro yeah. Almodovar is bringing it out. Uh, I don't want to because the the entirety of the midsection of the film, nothing in that is interesting or made any sense. Uh, that the, the bonding uh, between the two was so superficial. It was like, oh, okay, why? What is this going? Where is it? The narrative. You yeah, look. I completely agree with. Uh, you, the, the queer narrative doesn't really work. There was one scene, um, a, a beautifully shot scene on a bed, which was the only time where I started to feel some momentum building and some emotional resonance coming out. But by the end of the film, when it turns out, oh, this was all political all along, I've gotten so lost in the threads of this melodrama, um, which is overstuffed, where some of the things that happen towards the end of the film just don't land at all because this movie is juggling too many balls. Uh, and when it goes back to this reveal, it was all political. I just didn't really care, you know? It, there's still good things about it because it's a Pedro Almodovar film. There's some amazing set designs and some some striking- Yeah, I mean, if you like his colors, the usual colors, the bright reds, the bright yellows, the bright blues- Green. All, all, all shine through. Penelope Cruz is fantastic in, in the role yeah. that she's doing. She's playing a, a psychologically gray character. It's not black and white. She has some interesting elements to it. And it was nice to see her explore uh, a darker character once again. But beyond that, doesn't the film actually doesn't give her much to do. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the problem with the film. But the majority of the, in the film, the film basically meanders between trying to tell a queer story, which is completely forced in, 
trying to tell a story about motherhood, uh, which doesn't quite land, or end of story you tell about friendship, which it doesn't do well either. So mm-hmm. you're just like, I don't even know what you're trying to go for. It's There's no consistency in tone here. It feels like a film with a bunch of ideas that needs a rewrite to smooth them out. And I think the idea of trying to turn this melodrama into a political statement was really a bridge too far. I'm not sure that that ever could have worked unless the film was deeply rethought. Yeah, and I, I'm just so sad he followed uh, Pain and Glory, which was one of my absolute favorites in the last festival with this. Just so people don't think I'm being too obtuse, I see that what the political metaphor is about the need to connect with your parents, the need to know where you yeah, really yeah. came from. Like it, it was, it was it, but you don't feel it. It's not well yeah. enough linked to the narrative. You don't feel it because it just comes in for the first 10 minutes and then it comes back in the last 10 minutes of the film. And it is just as a placeholder, a beginning and an end, kind of top and tail to the yeah. film. Yeah, There's the no actual point of that in the film. It doesn't really connect to the fabric. I'm sure, look, Almodovo has stumbled before. I'm sure he'll go on to make another great one, but don't believe the hype. Um, you might still enjoy it, but, you know, if you've listened to this interview, okay. uh, interview everyone else, because it'll lower your stratospheric expectations from the frankly ridiculous early praise it does. Everyone uh, I spoke to seemed to have loved it, so maybe we're both no, wrong. I spoke to a couple of people who uh, felt the same way as us. The political did not merge well with the personal, and it was it was okay to good. Okay. Next film we're talking about is The Card Counter, which Christopher Rutt touched on last week, and it'll be in cinemas come, I think, December 2nd. It is a new Paul Schrader film with Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan, and Willem Dafoe about a card counter who has a, um, who has a very negative history, who we learn uh, got out of prison recently for a reason that um, they elaborate on throughout the film. I really, really like this film and can recommend it. Um, I thought Oscar Isaac was reliably excellent as always. I love that it showed a non-glamorous, realistic, but still very engaging and entertaining approach to Texas Hold'em and the poker tournaments and scenes throughout the country. I love that the main foil in the scene wasn't some, you know, real Lashif type figure, but just this amazing, ecstatic, eccentric Ukrainian guy. I liked the approach that Schrader took to very controversial subject matter. We find out more about why he was released from prison. This isn't a sort of figure that you typically see depicted in cinema and most directors would just either not come across the radar or steer clear from the sort of material. But I found the treatment of the central character and the situation that he is in uh, very interesting, not simply for being novel, but um, showing that there uh, may be, and whether there are dimensions or not, whether this character is an empathetic person at all, I found the explanation of whether they are empathetic to be interesting. Yeah, it, love- holds, it holds you on the edge of, at some points about whether he'll take horrible drastic action and, and how far you can go with him. And that's really part of what the film's about, I think. As he does with Ty Sheridan, who's very good, and I think a little underused, a lower limb foe. Um, I love, uh, speaking of some of these sequences that we, we learn more about the character, the use of the fisheye lens is incredible. I can see yeah. it being copied in many, many other films. I look, Isaac is excellent as always. I love the Henry Sugar esque element um, when he's dealing with how he has cards, um, the excellent eerie makeups of his room, and how he um, makes it an environment where he can absolutely concentrate. The one very major attraction of this film for me was Tiffany Haddish. Uh, she has charisma, 
and she has a very good chemistry with Isaac. However, she is simply not an actress who is near the level of proficiency or talent as the others in show. It's, it's not simply that, but that is in, is in such stark contrast to someone like Oscar Isaac, such a talented actor. I think she's very good in some roles, um, including- Yeah, I was going to say, sorry, I was just going to say, to be fair, Oscar Isaac, I don't think would do so well in a broad comedy as she would. It's a different style of actor. Uh, yes, but she's been cast and accepted the role here, so we have to address it for that. Yeah, um, the the uh, Eric Andre film we talked about earlier in the year, she was very good in that. That's true. But that's, uh, I think, within a range where she's much more comfortable. Um, there's one particular scene as emblematic of um, why I think she was very bad in this. I'm having said that, there, she, there, she does have some good scenes, but there's one where they're at a bar and they both have to impart how they're feeling about each other. Oscar Isaac, he's so amazing. He can just increase his brow and we get it. With her, she has to do these big facial gestures and movements. Um, it's extremely obvious and it's something that you can, you, you can tell when one performer is, and often performers are cast not just for charisma, but in terms of respected talent proficiency with the art in order that they may complement each other. Um, and it is when it is such the case that one is such on a, such a level to the other or the others are such a level to one, um, it takes you away from the film. And it's a strange piece of casting, which I think, I, I don't think the chemistry and charisma she brings to the film counterbalances um, her lack of um, comparable ability as a performer. As a dramatic performer so I think it was a bad piece of casting otherwise I really like this film and I still recommend it. I'm glad you loved it as much as I did Glenn. Yeah it was great. So that is The Card Counter. It is in cinemas come I think December 2nd. December 2nd that's right check it out. And the next film we're talking about is A Hero. Yeah the new film by Oscar for Hardy. I liked it a lot and I liked it I think more than Chris did because yeah. I think A it, it's returned to form for Hardy after everybody knows which was his English language uh, debut. It didn't quite land. It's comforting to see Spanish him back. Spanish language debut. It's not in English at all. Sorry, that's right. Spanish language debut. Uh, and uh, it was interesting to see him like, going back to Farsi, his uh, native language, and he's more comfortable with Iranian actors. Hmm. Uh, it's once again taking the, yes, it has the same for Hadi of taking a very simple conceit and then blowing it out of proportion as things snowball into bigger Secrets things. and moral questions written moral questions about a simple act which actually I didn't think had much moral relevance until you dig deeper and realize oh my god now it is actually so significant in that society if anything else it's more illustrative of Iranian society and how it's different to western culture because if you've been living in the west for a while the moral question it poses doesn't seem that significant until you realize how important it is for people in that culture and context uh, mm -hmm. I really loved it I saw it's a return to form for Hadi uh, yes, it's similar to a lot of his other films, but I still think Farhadi does this better than any other filmmaker, but I'd rather him do this than any other copycat trying to do it and then okay. do it badly. To give you an idea, the, the hero of the story is a man who's in jail for a debt, who comes out of jail, um, tries to sell off the money that he's picked up. Um, at a, a you, you know, we're not quite sure. Maybe I'm spoiling too much because we're not quite sure what's going on at the beginning as he comes out of yeah. jail. But the narrative pieces it together. But basically, after offering seventy thousand dollars of his one hundred fifty thousand dollars debt that he's been able to obtain, uh, he's refused. And uh, so instead, um, he makes a big show in some ways. The question is whether this was intended or whether this was just incidental. I'm leaning towards incidental of being a hero. He comes to be celebrated. He wants, uh, you know, there, there starts being pressure put on his creditor 
who um, suspects this is all a show partially for reason or um, an act of atonement or revenge, partially for reasons that aren't even true. Um, he wants the creditor to drop the debt. Um, he wants not to go back to jail. He wants to defend his honor. Um, and because he hasn't been quite truthful in the way the story plays out, things don't go to plan. Um, things fall apart. It's partly because of his fault in, in being untruthful, but it's also partly because people are not ready to see the good in him once they have their minds made up and it becomes a cross section of the way that society is turned against each other. What he, in my opinion, he is not that bad. He's just not as much of a hero as he's presented himself to be. But everybody looks at him through the worst possible lens. Okay, so this film is basically about honor, right? And, and in anything else, more than the fact that he is in jail, he doesn't really care whether or not he's in jail or not, but he would be in jail uh, or he would be prefer to be out of jail and restore his reputation more than the fact that he's in jail. If he's in jail for something petty, he wouldn't mind. But the fact that being in jail for something that has actually affected his reputation is something that he worries about a lot. So all the actions he takes subsequently uh, which is trying to present himself as a hero and playing along with that is basically because he feels that through this basic charade, he can restore his reputation in society. And whether or not he's still a convict doesn't matter. Because yeah. if he's a good convict and his reputation is restored, he's happy with that. He doesn't want to be seen as someone who's a convict with a debt. So he wants yeah. to restore the reputation aspect of it. And the fact is, this plays along so well because you realize how everyone, different strata we run in society, people at different levels, uh, coerce him and take advantage of him and that prospect for their own means. It's basically showing a world which is completely uh, self-obsessed, involved yeah. with their own means to an end, and is able to basically use any means to for their own ends. It's a very bleak film, but also it plays out more like a stage drama than as a film. Interestingly, it, this felt more like a drama on stage, which could have been worked better probably as a film. I think that's probably one of my reservations where I felt oh. it felt like a more personal drama, which would be more suited to stage because it, sometimes I felt Farhadi was limited by some of the locations where he's shooting much indoors rather than outdoors in the sense. The visual language in I mean, quite, it opens uh, with this incredible well visual bit of, of walking up the, the stairs of the tomb of Xerxes, and then that's about it as far that's as incredible it. visual bits. Um, but I guess, you know, that's meant to stage it in terms of history and old ideas of honor and, you know, set the, a stage of this metaphor. But being Fahadi, there's, of course, complications. The, the creditor has his own reasons to distrust this guy that come out and sound very reasonable once you hear them. Some of them are unfair, but some of them are perfectly reasonable. And uh, again, you know, there's also complications in terms of what exactly was the motivation of our main character. There's a lot going on. It's interesting, but like, I think I'm a, even though this is a good film, even though there's a lot to think about, I think I'm just kind of done with Fahadi's formula. I've seen so many variations on it at this point, and it's so dry, you know, it's so much talk about working out motivations about things. And there's big moment, interesting moments of explosions of emotion. But for the most part, it's this very process driven, not, as you say, like, not especially visual handheld realism type thing. Like, I don't know, like dry. I think part, of, part of the conceit is that yeah, the I, process has to be dry. I feel like the process has to be dry because that's the point of the film where. But all his films are the, emotionally dry to me. But I feel like in this film, especially because it's talking so much about protocol and about institutions, 
it is meant to be that dry tone because it's meant to make you feel that you, it wears you down bit by bit. Mm-hmm. That the institutions that you're a part of, whether they're you know other authority figures and other society in general, they basically take advantage of you to the extent where they basically suck all life out of you. And by the end of it, our protagonist kind of feels helpless and it's meant to make you feel helpless and dry and as if you have no control over your own life. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting in that sense. And, and that's, I think the visual style of it being dry was kind of the point of the film. Yeah. Um, okay, so a film I haven't seen, uh, sorry, I've seen, no one else was able to catch it. I really recommend is One Second. It's the new film from Zhang Yimou. In my eyes, it's the best film he's made in quite a long time. Um, but I have to put a big asterisk around any appreciation of this film. It has an epilogue which totally undermines a lot of the messages and a lot of the emotional stakes that have been conveyed in this. But this film was meant to premiere at the Berlinale last year, and it was seen um, at at the time, um, there was an announcement that due to a technical issue, the China Film Board was withdrawing it from competition. One has to wonder what kind of technical issue would cause a film that's already been selected from a film festival to no longer be able to be played. But this film resurfaced uh, later- War is very technical, Chris. Yes, this film resurfaced midway through this year um, in, a, in festivals, and in between, Zhang Yimou put out uh, Cliff Walkers, which shocked me at how visually dull it was, with almost every scene playing out as an establishing shot followed by close-ups of talking heads, when Yimou is an incredibly visually inventive filmmaker. Having seen this film in its new cut with a slightly different runtime that's now been allowed to be released, I think he made Cliff Walkers as a bargain to get this movie released. And part of the bargain was also that it's only able to be released with an epilogue that turns that d- removes away from some of the criticism of China, the Chinese Communist Party's history. Um, the rumor at the time when this was removed from Berlin was that the government said this messaging is not allowed in the anniversary year of our People's Republic. Um, so. It, the movie ends on a note, which to me obviously feels like the final image, carries a huge amount of, of weight. It's this incredibly poetic visual and an amazing bittersweet ending. And then there's a two years later moment where suddenly all the characters act out of character, the tone changes, um, the idea about how bad the Chinese re-education camps were is undermined. It's obviously been imposed on this film. So if you can compartmentalize it and say that it ends at what's obviously the final image and you feel that image, amazing film. Let's just not talk about the desecration and the anti-art work that's been done to it. This film is about a man who escapes after six years imprisonment in a Chinese re-education camp to try um, to a town where um, a newsreel is being played, which features footage of his daughter and um, who he's desperate to see. She's part of now this kind of um, young communist kind of education group that are being shown in, in a propaganda tape, essentially. Um, and he meets an, a young uh, orphan girl. These are both people from the fringes of society with filthy faces and who, you know, acting in really emotionally desperate ways. And she also wants to steal this film, as he does, for different reasons. Along the way, we get a sense of the cinema culture of China at the time and the way that film is used as propaganda, where we meet this incredible character, a Mao-like figure who calls himself Mr. Movie, who deeply loves his job being the film projectionist and uh, would do anything to hold on to that job, which ends up adding a lot of moral complications to this film. It's a fast-paced, accessible film with interesting characters while also holding deep emotional weight. 
And of, um, while one of my pet hates is usually uh, films that celebrate the history and um, glories of cinema uh, in, as cinema recedes in people's mind as the dominant art form these days, this film was the, the only recent one that actually I really responded to because it complicates that by, while it, it shows how cinema can be magical, um, it also shows how cinema can be propaganda um, it, and it shows how they can meet at the middle, how something can be propaganda for some person, but have carry personal resonance for somebody else. It's a morally complex film and uh, the characters, it, it's a great social commentary in how it shows that characters act in morally questionable ways because they're forced to by the incentives and disincentives that the society brings up. And the note of the images of the glory of cinema, um, it, the way that this film presents it with this um, Mao uh, admiring cinema projectionist who orders people around and, and takes great pride in it in order to carry off the technical feat of showing people the film with the technology they have is beautiful. And to watch all these people stop their petty squabbles, et cetera, to just sort of just stand in rapt awe at attention when the film screens, it's such a powerful image that Yumu knows exactly how much to milk. The personal narrative is deeply moving. Um, you know, it's, it's a really impossible, I think, not to be moved by this, this guy's love for his daughter and his desperation and clearly his sense that he, he could die soon and he might never get to see her again. And the lengths he's willing to go to to see, as the title says, one second of his of footage of his daughter. It, it's actually one of the best films at the festival and it's a real shame that it's been desecrated. And I really hope that Zhang Yimou will be allowed to make a film on this level again. He's one of China's greatest directors and it's incredible to watch him go back to social commentary which is what defined his early work before he moved into spectacle like films like Hero, House of Flying Daggers, and of course, directing the Beijing Olympics opening ceremony. One has to wonder if someone who hadn't done such a, a solid for the government as that would have been allowed even to get away with releasing even this compromised edit of the film. But the beauty of what he accomplished still stands up. One second is great. But another film, one that we've both seen though, not quite as good in my eyes, but a good film, Compartment number six, what did you think? Yeah, I, the log line I would give to people for compartment number six to contextualize it is that think Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, but make it more rugged, a bit more real, uh, and a bit more kind of scruffy, essentially. Uh, because what I feel is like, if Before Sunrise is what you hoped your train journey would be like in the, in the, in the real world, in terms of like what you hope it would be like, Compartment number six is probably what your train journey most likely is like. You know, it is like, you know, you, you meet people, you, you're a bit, you know, scruffy, you are carrying a backpack, which is oversized. It, not everyone is completely likable, but you try to see the good in them as you go along and you find some sort of connection. It's not life-changing, but you kind of remember them afterwards fondly. But and it can, it, it's the memory yeah. that lingers. And, but life. it can be life-changing in the way that, in the, the context of this film, it steers the main character away from grief. This is, it's yeah. about the main I character. Don't, I, don't, I don't think it steers them away. It's, it's more like a distraction. It sort of gives you temporary relief, if not. Honestly, if not. I, th I think it's more profound than that. I don't think okay, it's right. necessarily okay. this relationship is, is going to last so much as that, to have such a joyous experience of connection when you're in a bad place as our main character is, I think can, can transport, you know, can alter the trajectory because what this film is about is a person who is fixated on the past and the things that she wishes she could have had being yeah. shown that actually the world is full of possibilities, you know? 
it's that that's what I mean about like it's not just a temporary distraction. It could be what saves her, not not this relationship, but this experience could be what saves her from just falling into a depression. You know, the right place at the right time. Um, or it saves her from her depression that she's already fallen into, to be honest. But the right place at the right time, the right person, the world is beautiful. Um, I found when you were talking about some of these textural aspects of the train journey, I love the dirtiness. I love the the Soviet, you know, post-Soviet chic of Russia, yeah. Russia, you know, old. Yeah, old actually, the, the landscape, the landscape of the train journey is probably the most interesting part of the film, where it's limited to the train carriage, but mm. still, you get to see enough of Russia and landscapes and changing uh, diversity there to kind of uh, get a sense of the real place. Yeah, and uh, you know, the, it's such. My friend Lachlan, who uh, was was watching the film with me, uh, when he, afterwards he made the point that I totally agree with, which is it's such a sensory immersion and it's so immersive. Um, you know, the the set, the rattling train compartments, the sound design, the way the handheld footage is shot, just right. You know, um, the relationship between the, that emerges between these two characters is very sweet. Some people will take issue because it opens where he's basically he's extremely drunk and he's basically sexually assaulting her. And some people have taken issue saying like, what is this film saying that we should forgive people who sexually assault and then look for the good in them? I understand anyone who, I'm not going to tell people not to take issue with that. It didn't bother me so much because what I think the film was more about is like, this guy is, is a bad guy and does bad things. But, you know, you come to realize that he's coming from a place of hurt and he has the potential to be very good if he's just given a bit of love. Um, some people will take issue with that, but I felt like the, the study of the character that was shown was convincing enough that I believe that he's not a fundamentally bad person. He's just a person who is isolated and alone and doesn't know how to, how to express things. He, I mean, look, he's a, he's a 90s Russian minor, you yeah. know? He's, he's, he expresses himself in an extremely macho kind of way and doesn't know how to express himself emotionally. And the tension of the film is him meeting with this artistic girl a bisexual girl, you know, who is uh, interested in history, interested in, you know, wanting to be part of a world of trendy parties with with the hipster set in Moscow. It's such a huge question. It's a star-crossed kind of meet cute kind of. Uh, yeah. Scenario. And what comes out also along with some of the people you meet in here is don't judge by first appearances. You know, yeah. people sometimes are at their worst. People who present themselves as being nice guys can turn out to be extremely manipulative. Um, and the warmth of this journey really comes out the way that, you know, the, these characters don't have much else. So they come to sort of be protective of each other. Um, yeah. It's a know, very sweet film. Exactly. Honestly. Person who might Quite appear funny. so, yeah, person who might appear so may not be the worst person in the world. Uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's, 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 a, it's intentionally a kind of small scale film, but yeah. I think it worked. It, it worked with what he was trying to accomplish, and I'm glad that it didn't pull any punches for what it was trying to go for. It, yeah. it didn't go for any grand moments of realization. That's it was right. a small film, it achieved what it wanted to. It's it a touching, it touching yeah. film. So the next one I want to talk about, um, just in brief, we'll talk about, a, a, in my opinion, not very good experimental film. And then um, the Doctor wouldn't be quite less experimental, but also somewhat experimental in terms of form. Yeah. So a dog who wouldn't be quiet. Uh, Glenn, what are you saying? Are you, are you bailing out? This has been really good. I have to pop off and I look forward to next week talking, wrapping as we do need to on the City Film Festival. It has been a, it has been really good in terms of quality. It's been good seeing people in person and catching up with folks. 
Um, a lot of effort was put into this from a curatorial perspective, but also to make sure that it was safe and it was safe. Um, it was nice seeing venues that hadn't been explored before, including the Chevelle and Palace Central. I mean, look, I'm pretty sure I don't have COVID. So, I mean, that speaks volumes, right? Yeah, I, I, we, we sound good. We sound good. <laughs> they did a good job. They did a good job. I'm very grateful. I know it's going to be traveling, it's a traveling film festival. I know it's screening online, including the festival prize winner, which is wonderful to see. Um, the next Sydney Film Festival comes with the 8th of June. So we have two in relatively rapid succession. And they won't be able to draw from the Venice lineup. There's a few films. They didn't play the um, Golden Lion winner. So I guess they can save that one for next time. Unless it's screened somewhere. It could very well get a release screen somewhere else. Yeah. The Berlin films are always the best. So do we get the Berlin film? They're not. They're often actually not the best. Just in the past few years, Berlin's had a huge resurgence, I think. Um, Khan, Khan brought some of the best films of the year, like Drive My Car. And we'll be back. I'll be back next week with yeah. James Bond to talk No Time to Die. Yeah, one film, keen to get into an unusual movie. We might also touch on some of the films like The Bust Justice of Bunny King that are available on the streaming section uh, in the podcast after we've discussed No Time to Die at length. We'll also go into spoilers on No Time to Die in the podcast next week. Basically, James Bond, we'll delve into it. Over and over and done with. And just as <laughs> we're continuing our run of Thompson McKenzie movies because then is Last Night in Soho, uh, which we caught the other night. Yeah, interesting stuff. That's yeah. in as tomorrow, I think. Lots to look forward to. Um, Last Night in Soho, not so much in Marion Barrett's opinions, but that'll be a I agree. I mean, you can look forward to well. our vigorous discussion about how this movie is good. No, please not two hours. Anyway. Right. I'll see you guys. Enjoy. Have a good night and enjoy movies. And I look forward to more movies so you know oh yeah always more see you dude see you so an experimental film i wasn't so much into come here um i've enjoyed two previous films from anocha suisha kompong the uh, thai director who made this um, mundane history and by the time it gets quiet i didn't love those films but i i thought they were at least interesting but this one um, while it's formally beautiful, I felt like it really didn't have much to say. You know, okay, great, a, a, a film about cinema, again, you know, um, an experimental film expressing how cinema works. Okay, so a character can merge into another character. I only saw that 60 years ago watching Persona, 50 years ago, whatever it is, you know. Um, oh, you know, what, watching a scene play out in one context and then watching a reconstructed film version. This has been done so many times by now. And when you compare it to the narrative loops, something like Inland Empire throws you through between these two kind of things and, and how that shifts the mind to see it presented in this really austere, um, minimalist, slow cinema style. To me, you need to have some really rich new ideas if you're going to milk slow cinema so much. Even watching characters, um, you know, serious characters play acting as animals and, and running around making animal sounds has for me become like an art house cliche. So I was blown away by how little she seemed to have to say with this film um, in terms of things that haven't been seen before and how serious and protracted and cold the presentation was. Beautiful black and white imagery, but beyond that, I don't really have anything to recommend about it. But another black and white film yeah. is The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet. Yeah, by director Anna Katz, an Argentinian filmmaker. Uh, this is a film uh, which is uh, really funny. I was surprised by how incredibly funny it is. It's about a person uh, uh, who is, is life. <laughs> you know, a day in the life of a person uh, 
who has a dog. Years in the life of a person. Sorry? Years in the life of a person. Years in the life of a person, but it begins with a day in the life, and we see that a dog is following them around. Uh, and uh, that bugger... well, actually, no. It's that it starts off with that the dog is lonely. The guy's being told you need to take your dog with him. Um, you know that the, everyone uh, is expressing how much they've had to listen to the dog, who wouldn't be quiet because he's he's whining and and that, you know that that's the core theme of this film. It's like loneliness and how we're going to address loneliness, right? Because yeah, what starts off the drama is the guy thinks you know really loves his dog and hearing how lonely it's been, he wants to. Um, take it to work with him. And, you know, that doesn't go yeah. down so well. So I think actually it's an interesting thing about addressing loneliness because the film tries to address it in different ways. It's about, is it uh, basically getting a companion, aka a pet? Uh, will, will that solve your loneliness issues? Apparently not. Will it be that you can uh, solve it by having a community at work where their capitalist system can allow for solving loneliness? And this is a film which is incredibly political once again, hmm. because it's talking about how the capitalist systems of work in, in in the sense like the nine to five work that we've established which glenn has just gone to because he's just joined the corporate world yeah. uh, you know is that going to solve our issue of loneliness apparently not because the systems that we've set up into the capitalist world are not designed to understand our deep emotional issues and the people who are working in the system are ticking boxes they're not assigned to mm. understand and allow flexibility for us to really appreciate those nuances there's and a then economy to this narrative. We're going, yeah. cutting through a huge spectrum of this guy's life. Um, the, basically, this character is an outcast. You know, he's a he's the um, guy who doesn't quite find his, know his place, and it's sort of the story of him gradually coming to a place of acceptance. But what it was to me was showing how we um, we do what we can to feel less alone in the world but we keep getting affected by circumstances beyond our control. And how do we deal with that? And how do we find new communities? How do we find new companions when things beyond our control take us away as they inevitably do in the journey of life from the people we've forged a connection with, from the people that we love? They're always going to be taken away from us. We're always going to be a little bit lost. What do we do next? It echoes with a theme that I kept seeing through films in this festival of how do we move on from grief? And it does so in, in I thought, a really beautiful way. I think so, especially because I think it directly addresses the pandemic in a very real way. Mm. We the, the film has a very direct reference to a pandemic. I'm not going to reference how or what that is. but when There are some twists in this narrative. It, it's a, it's a beautiful are. twist. And the way that they, it imagines a post-pandemic world is some of the That's most hilarious sequences. And it's very bleak. It's very sad, but it was so funny. It was so funny to see that those visuals and people behaving in those ways. That's it. There was some great black comedy in this film. Yeah. But it's still optimistic. It's still uplifting, despite um, yeah. trying to diagnose a lot of social ills. And, and there is also uh, a commentary about the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated in a very subtle way. Yeah. Whether or not those people who are left behind. But it's also an economic the people who are, Yeah. It's an economic, uh, it's mostly an economic film. It's an anti-capitalist film because eventually the answer to that is we need to be more collectivist and find people and communities mm. who can support us rather than capitalist systems of power. It's, if anything else, it's, it's an anti-capitalist film because- It it's, is, it's but it's also just a personal story, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's, not, it's not so overtly political as to alienate or, um, the personal or become uh, too cerebral. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's- uh, it's beautiful. I think it was a real surprise at the fest. Uh, 
this was one that I had basically kept my eye out for, but mm. I didn't think it would affect me as much as it did. Uh, at only about 70 minutes or so, it's also one of the shortest films of the festival, along with 75 minutes. 75 minutes. And uh, it did what it did it, in, in terms of very short, time, perfectly and, edited. And, and because it's, it's mostly the only real character is the main character, really. Yeah. So but, you get to know him really well, despite this being such a brief, you know, narrow runtime. You get, and you mostly get to know him not through dialogue because he's a bit of a removed person who, as we, we are told, you know, doesn't commit to things. But we get to know him through his great performance, his facial expression, and, and his also, loneliness, and his, his it, it, it has, and disconnection from people. I think really it, has, it has one of the best dancing sequences as well, which is the funniest. Very funny. And very, and, but also in the wider context of the narrative, very touching. Very touching, yeah. So funny is touching and it's bleak. So I guess that this is the thread we are going for, along with French Dispatch. Humor is bleak, which is funny, yeah. which is touching. Well, the thing it all is, comes back together. This film is so warm, and this film has such a belief that real human connection and community can overcome the issues, and we just need to focus on that. That I wouldn't call it bleak, you know. I think it's bleak in the sense very... that it's a bleak in the sense that it presents a bleak uh, post-apocalyptic world that we are going to be a part of, but eventually. But it's it's about, not bleak in the sense that it doesn't give into that. need to live with that. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I think the conclusions this film comes to are anything but bleak. But on the note, film, I wish more people would check it out. I yeah, think I this was the real surprise of the festival. I agree. So one that uh, carried a lot of weight with it um, is The Hand of God. This was in the official competition. It's the new film from Paolo Sorrentino. And it continues the uh, exploration of the theme of moving on from loss that we've seen in so many of the films at the festival. That seems to be an idea that's really resonating with people in the zeitgeist right now. I wanna discuss this film more with you guys when you've seen it. I think it's one of the best films of the year and uh, one of the best films of the festival and it deserves that kind of attention. But it's interestingly had a very mixed response with mostly Anglosphere uh, critics seem a bit mixed on it, but when it played at Venice, the European and Russian and Chinese critics went head over heels for it. I wonder how much of that is because of um, political questions about the male gaze, right? Because this film is, is an autobiographical movie about a 16-year-old Paolo Sorrentino. He has a different name in this, but from what I know of his autobiography, this is, this is um, very closely tied to his own experiences, right? Um, and it situates you within the gaze of a, a teenage boy you know, 15 to 16 years old, um, who obviously is very horny. It's also a Fellini tribute because Fellini, it's about the year that he decided he wanted to be a filmmaker. And Fellini is Paolo Sorrentino's favorite director. And Fellini is famously horny, you know? Um, <laughs> voluptuous women, a celebration of the form has always been a big part of Fellini. And uh, so it is here as well, but I don't think this film is objectifying and you know everyone will, will stand at a different place um, in terms of what they consider acceptable. Clearly a lot of Western critics thought that this was not acceptable or that this is kind of queasy. Um, my stance on this is that you know horniness is a fact of life. It's okay to express it and that we shouldn't be puritanistic or, or moralistic in the way that we make our art provided that we think about what we're doing. And I think Sorrentino has here, he's trying to express, this is what it was like for me being a teenager. However, 
what what ma makes it to me not objectifying and i think we need to stick to the definitions of words if we're going to throw around a word like objectifying is that despite expressing and aligning our gaze with um this character's horniness there's a real emotional interest in the inner lives of these characters they're always complicated beyond just being bodies to be lusted after um even peripheral characters that he, he seems to be taking a sexual interest in reveal suddenly that they have a, an inner life that he hadn't, you know, um, he hadn't noticed. But I don't want to get too fixated on this notion of the film. I just bring it up. Uh, this is just a small aspect of the film. I just bring it up because it seems to have had an outsized um, effect on the way that this film's been received. There's a little bit of mean humor earlier on that almost um, turned me off from the film. I almost turned on it, but um, and I can discuss that more when we see the film later. But overall, this film has an extraordinary emotional generosity. It has a huge visual splendor. It's really a tribute to the city of Naples, um, expressed in huge wide shots. It's about the sense of freedom. It's about Italy in the 80s and features some wonderful fashion that reminds me of Call Me By Your Name, also Italy in the 80s. Um, it's a celebration of family and the ties of family. It's a celebration of living life for the things that you love. The hand of God refers to um, Maradona, you know, the phrase that was always used to describe Maradona being touched by the hand of God in the 80s. Um, and Maradona being someone that the boy is passionate about and a lot of other characters in this film are passionate about ends up having an outsized impact on the narrative. It also, I think, refers to Fellini, who um, is depicted as being like God in, in a really uh, striking sequence in this film. I think this is by far the best film Sorrentino's made. Some people have been saying it's too um, warm and personal and he doesn't have quite the, you know, the touch for this kind of material and he's better off with something more coldly removed like The Great Beauty. But to me, this film, as much as I enjoyed The Great Beauty, at times I felt like it was a bit too affected. And this film goes beyond that to strike at something really deeply human um, and it portrays, it has huge tonal shifts between comedy and tragedy and um, uplift that didn't feel false to me, that felt real. Um, it keeps throwing complicated characters at you and complicated notions and uh, a belief in the goodness of people and the potential wonder of life rings out. Hand of God is going to be on Netflix, I believe, on December 16th. It's going to have a, a run in cinemas from December 2nd. I highly recommend everyone sees this on a big screen, even just for the opening shot, which is this stunning helicopter fly-through of, of the city of Naples that sets the tone for the visual grandeur, the broad scale and, and the, um, the camera movements and the dynamism of this story. Uh, I, I don't think unless you've got a really, really souped up home theater, you're going to be able to appreciate the spectacle and the splendor of this film. I highly recommend The Hand of God. So in brief, two films I, I thought were okay. There weren't many duds in this festival, um, but uh, you know, oh, yeah, not that great. They're all right. Um, the better one was Paris 13th District. It's the new film from uh, Jacques Audiard. It was also co-written by Celine Siama. It's nowhere near as good as uh, her directorial efforts, but you can see some of her touches in the script. Um, it feels a bit like Odiad's really trying to keep up to date with the youth. He's making a movie about the sex lives of a bunch of kids in Le, Le Olympiades, the 13th district of, of Paris. Um, it's in black and white. There's an electronic music score. Um, it's about, it, it's almost like three different narratives of 
characters whose lives intersect, um, who end up sleeping with each other and, you know, whether or not they'll fall in love with each other. Some of the aspects of the way that young people's lives are presented are really sensationalistic and, in my opinion, out of touch. Um, I, I feel like Oriad's trying desperately to keep in tune with a generation that's probably starting to escape him and comm commendation to him for trying, but I don't think it really works. But, uh, you know, it was fun. It's fast paced enough. It's designed to be accessible to young people, I think, um, despite having a lot of nudity. French young people, I guess. Um, it, uh, you know, yeah, it keeps along with, it distracts you with enough twists and turns in the plot and um, characters acting like fiery charged young people that it can't be boring, but there's just so much going on that I didn't think there was much depth to these characters. I thought it, it was fairly superficial in terms of the scenarios. Um, the ultimate culmination of the plot, I wasn't convinced by because I'd never gotten to know these people enough to buy some of the changes that they make. It's like, a, yeah, it's a superficially fun um, sex escapade rom-com, I suppose. Go see it if you want, it's all right. It's good. You know, that's the thing. Good movies just aren't good enough when we've been watching so many great ones. Yeah. So the next, the last film I'll talk about is Great Freedom. Um, Which is also your segue into the end of the podcast because you'll eventually have your Great Freedom from- That's right. I'm about to finally win my Great Freedom after, how long has it been? More than 90 minutes now? Yeah. Anyway, um, Great Freedom is about a man who's been imprisoned for decades for being gay, basically. We don't get to spend much of the time. We, it's implied that he's going in and out of prison, but the narrative confines him to the prison. For the most part, we, we don't get to see any of the time that he's outside of there. Um, so the, essentially, he's imprisoned by the Nazi party, but this idea of um, being gay being a criminal offense stays in the German constitution for decades after the Nazis are gone. Um, it, it takes a long time for that to be removed. Um, and the film's about the injustice of that, and it's a prison narrative where he bonds with other gay people, some of whom he knew before, some of whom he didn't within the, the prison. He finds ways to play the system so that he can find alone time with people. Um, he refuses to cooperate essentially because he's a character who lives for great freedom and wants to uh, not sacrifice his ideals even though he's been put inside the, this prison. What really emerges most of all is a platonic love um, and a deep care between a person who's um, initially introduced as quite a rough homophobic type person, but ends up um, sharing a cell with our lead character and uh, the ways that they look out for each other. And uh, there, there are some, I call it platonic love. There are some sexual aspects of their relationship um, because this is a prison and this, this, these are people who are imprisoned for a long time and they need to look out for each other's needs, but it never becomes, it's, it's always understood that one character is, is under normal circumstances, romantically and sexually straight, and the other one is romantically and sexually gay. And those lines don't, sort of don't get crossed. So it's more about platonic love. And the ways that platonic love are explored in this are really moving, I think. But that's the best thing about the film and the rest of it to me, feels a little bit too much like wallowing in misery porn. It has moments of power that are enough for me to think that overall it's, overall it's just about a good film, but it's a little bit too one note. It's a little bit too 
I'm, I'm getting tired and, and my words are starting to be run out. But uh, I'm sure you can imagine, you think misery point prison narrative. Um, think yeah. uh, I'm going to make you feel how bad this is by showing you characters suffering and going through cycles of suffering. And I've always found that style of storytelling, if you can't infuse it with maybe some greatest kind of spiritual significance, um, I use spiritual in the broad sense of the word, um, to be a little bit reductive, again, in a reductive approach to how we derive empathy. Yeah. And uh, this film occasionally transcends that. That's about all I have to say on Great Freedom. There are too many other great films to really discuss too much time That's on. Okay, I was, I, was feeling, I was feeling a bit guilty on missing out the Paris 13 district and Great Freedom. But from your responses, I feel less guilty now that okay, no. probably not the best ones to. No, they, they weren't bad films. They, if they come to cinemas, they might well be the best movie out at the time or of the, of the few weeks Yeah, around. but based on what we've already seen at the festival, it, it doesn't feel like I missed out for the festival. No, you don't need to see these films compared to some of the others ones we've, uh, we've caught. Then that's about okay. it for our coverage. That's a marathon episode uh, for, for this week uh, in terms yeah. of our festival films. Yeah, we, we will still be covering a... some on-demand films next week. That's right, but these are the ones on we caught in cinemas. Yeah. Uh, which includes the ones I'm looking out for. One is Apples, which I'm excited no, for. I'm keen to that. I'm keen to Radiograph of a Family, which uh, as a documentary uh, won certain awards as well and seems to be hmm. very interesting. I'm also keen uh, for Le Temps Perdu, the uh, documentary about the Proust reading group in France. Yeah, and I know Glenn was interested in Justice of Bunny King, uh, the new Thomas. Yeah, I've, I have heard really good things about that. It sounded and like she's also in Last Night in Soho, so it would be interesting that she's having a yeah. Year. I'm keen to check that one out. Uh, maybe we can discuss it in the podcast next week. Yeah, let's see. Thank you so much for sticking around with us. I know it's been a lot. It's a lot of movies, <laughs> and it's a we lot of Film Fight Club. Uh, uh, so it's we love you hopefully. Guys. Yeah, we love you guys. We love movies and we love you listening to movies. We love talking about them. So thank you so much for sticking around. Uh, hopefully join us next week when we talk about normal cinema. Uh, okay, <laughs> Bond. Boring um, cinema. James Ooh, Bond. James Bond. Time to die. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's actually it's better than that than it could have been for sure. I'm just being... I'm tired. The festival movies were so good, you know? It's almost like cold water. It, it, it's, like a, it's always been a, a drag returning to lowering your expectation once again after a festival yeah. run, realizing yeah. this is what normal cinema is supposed to Especially be. Especially a festival like this one, which was lacking in the kind of boring festival filler films that we usually see, and that was mostly yeah. just all killer. Um, you know, man, it was a, a cold water bucket to the face to watch last night in Soho, the, the night after we finished the Sydney Film Festival, huh? And a lot of people liked it, and I was very- I feel so out of touch. But I know, thanks to Twitter, the, there's a lot of people like us who see it as we do. But yeah. we'll get into this. Okay. I, I don't understand yeah. the world sometimes. We'll eventually get into it. Think, I think that's the major theme of the festival. We don't understand the world we live in. We're trying to make sense of it. As doing the best we can. Uh, yeah, doing the best we can. As film critics, as normal people, as post-pandemic uh, survivors, I think yeah. we're all doing the best we can. And I hope you're all doing the best you can to survive yet another week. And we shall see you next week with more movies, more chit-chat, and more Glenn. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Good night. Bye-bye.